Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Front three, we know it's a little late, but it's still, uh, it's better to have loved and listened than never to have listened at all, in a way. Uh, Nico, good to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nico can only join us for a little while, and then it's just uh, the front two with Chris. Good to have you as well, Chris. Lovely to be here. We start the podcast tonight with a classic storyline for this season, and Liverpool lacking midfield shape. And therefore going to RB Leipzig and saying, guys, uh, let him go. Just let him go. Just uh, please let him go. And RB Leipzig uh, maybe playing ball, maybe not trying to play ball publicly, maybe saying one thing privately, maybe saying another. A lot of journalists in the Echo and other sources in Liverpool, traditionally reliable sources as well, um, saying that there is definitely the possibility of bringing Cater in, uh, especially uh, as both sides are holding talks. Um, but let's see. I mean, Chris, to bring Naby Cater in in January would definitely help Klopp restructure, especially considering where Cater would sit in the side and you know what it would do to the shape of the team, what it would mean for a Mane and reinvigorating someone like him for the second half of the season, but also uh, structuring where Salah and Firmino might go and maybe working up a relationship between those guys. Yeah, I think um, it would give them a, a renewed sense of, of energy and purpose in the wake of Coutinho going. And, and to a certain extent, it makes me think that maybe they hadn't planned on letting Coutinho go this transfer window. And I think the the thing at the same time is you would argue that the, the Premier League title isn't um, up for grabs. And at the same time, RB Leipzig are very much involved in, in trying to stay in the Champions League for for next season. They're, they're currently fifth. Um, admittedly, I think Bayern and uh, Leverkusen have obviously played a game more out of that top five because they played on Friday evening, but um, they're all kind of fairly locked. It's not by any stretch confirmed who will finish in second, third, fourth, or in Leipzig's case, fifth. Um, so I'm surprised that they're, they're willing to entertain this. I have no uh, inside information. I can only interpret the way that things have been conveyed by others. Um, to me, at least, it, it reads like a club that actually would be more than willing to let him go during this January transfer window. But they are protesting the opposite, um, I think, in an attempt to 
garner as much as they possibly can from um, Liverpool on this one. And why not? Because I think when you look at the context of, of European football, I think the Premier League is still seen as this this giant cash cow. It's, it's financially above its, its competition. And, and I think that comes at the cost of you will pay a tax when um, you are a Premier League club dealing with an, another on the continent. It's a very good point. I mean, uh, Nico, it certainly changes Liverpool a little bit, doesn't it? We will get on to Coutinho in just a second. But Keita does fill somewhat of a hole in the midfield. Or even if there's not a hole left by somewhere, someone there, it, he definitely gives it a structure and you can see where players would fit around it. Yeah, 100%. I think the biggest thing that we can take from this is that Liverpool football club in in terms of their upper management are taking no risks in terms of how they feel about the rest of the season. Obviously, as Chris alluded to there, the title is basically no longer up for grabs um, for anyone but Manchester City to essentially fail. Um, But the top four race is still very much in contention and there are five clubs for three slots. So with that being said, Liverpool have to move the needle and they have to move the needle in a, as you mentioned there, a Coutinho-sized hole. And while I don't necessarily believe that Naby Keita will come in and provide the same amount of, you know, attacking influence that someone like Coutinho uh, did for Liverpool, which I think it's interesting to see how his perception amongst fans and even amongst people who aren't fans of Liverpool, but simply are just, you know, fans of the Premier League and fans of football, um, how that perception was altered by the by the transfer to Barcelona. But obviously he's, a, he's an exceptional player. He played really, really well for Liverpool, even leading up to his transfer. Um, and so Naby Keita will definitely influence that. It's, it's just... It's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how he does that because I think one of the things, uh, and Dave has done a bunch of stuff on Navigates in the past. I think um, what one of the most interesting things about is that now Liverpool has. Yes. Yeah. Dave can't do yes. anything on the yeah, channel. He won't, be, yeah. he, he, won't be, he won't be doing anything now, but uh, he'll be doing uh, things on players that you know could possibly move to, to United. Um, but the most interesting thing about Naby Keita is that you know he is probably one of the more complete midfielders that we've seen in a long, long time in terms of he seems mentally committed to making defensive actions and proficient in that, not just in sort of a, a, a commitment manner, but also sort of, you know, he's skilled in, in his defensive uh, actions as well as the ability to drive through midfield and create opportunities through vertical passing and distribution. So in terms of his skill set, it's not exactly like a Coutinho, but he offers something different. And that coinciding with how much firepower and how, you know, how well those things are going to, you know, sort of gel together with uh, the rest of Liverpool's attacking players, players like Sadio Mane and Roberto Firmino is going to be really exciting to see. And I think probably that's the thing that Liverpool fans can take away from the past couple of seasons is that they might not have won many things, but they have been far and away the most exciting team to watch in the Premier League, I think, pretty consistently for a long time. Yeah, I mean, you know, depending upon uh, what you consider exciting. And like you said earlier today, uh, it must be lovely for Coutinho to watch a team uh, score for and then not immediately concede for. Um, of course, Coutinho has arrived in Barcelona and Barcelona dressed him up in a funny little hoodie and then trotted him out. Um, and he looked he looked overjoyed. Klopp uh, on the Friday. I loved, I loved those Vapor Maxes that he wore. I love uh, those Vapor Maxes. They were nice Vapor Maxes, but I'm surprised. I'm, you know what? It doesn't surprise me that Coutinho is not one of the uh, sort of collaboration with Virgil style trainers. He's not that kind of guy. He's quite a clean cut guy, I think. Uh, and Nike saw a big opportunity, uh, after, obviously after helping Barcelona secure that deal, 
by releasing. Should we talk about? Should we talk about Nike and Adidas, Lawrence? Uh, uh, how? Well, I think there are a couple moves recently that that kind of are shaping the the biggest transfers that have a lot to do with the big swoosh and the three stripes. Wouldn't you say? Uh, I definitely say that it feels like there are people in the marketing side that are facilitating conversations. Um, in the- I, ha- I have a very uh, Alex Jones esque theory about about these Adidas and, and Nike. You think it's a pedophile ring? <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, there's a pizza shop somewhere where Hillary Clinton is molesting kids. No, uh, but it, I think maybe Adidas just to, turning to pull the on frogs that. gay. They're not. They're not. I think just to pull on that. To pull on that string a little bit, if you look at maybe the the Pogba deal, for example, he was in and out of Nike Magistas. They gave him a ton of different, you know, uh, you know, colored boots. They gave him a France special. They gave him one that he could write all over and be. And then I think they like plastered over it and made it sort of a permanent thing. So Nike were really vying for Paul Pogba when he was still at Juventus. And then Adidas were able to get him uh, to sign a contract and obviously gave him his own boots while he was still there, a special edition. It wasn't like for commercial release. but um, And then you saw the big move to, to Manchester United, which at the very same time signed, I think, one of the biggest sporting deals that a, between a club and a, and a sort of sporting organization had ever been done between Adidas and Manchester United. Um, and now recently we've seen Paulo Dybala, sign with adidas when he was a nike athlete before he was in a blackout boot for about a year so they were negotiating contracts between them two so the, the I, and i the reason i mentioned dabala is because the the contention between that uh his signature between nike and adidas supposedly did have an effect as to whether uh barcelona which is a nike club was interested in philip coutinho i've heard similar um but then do you think that means something interesting? I mean, I suppose he's really in the ideal place then for Adidas because they have an Adidas player in Adidas boots playing in an Adidas club. Yeah, I think I think that's that's the, the big hitter for these kind of things is that Dybala, obviously Argentinian, uh, Argentina has a contract with uh, Adidas. So if they can get their full... 365 marketing, no matter what jersey Paulo Dybala is in, whether it be Juventus, whether it be one day Manchester United or Real Madrid or Argentina, he's going to be able to be a marketable asset for Adidas. And I think the same thing goes for some of these Nike athletes. Even if you look at Sadio Mane right now, obviously, I think he has committed a significant portion of his future to uh, to Liverpool, which is obviously a new, bla- new balance club and previous to you know this season he was a nike mercurial player and up until the first half of the season now in training they've seen him with new balance boots possibly signing a new contract with them so i think it's 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 not maybe not what we normally talk about but i think maybe a, a deeper look into how much of an effect um these massive shoe companies have in terms of where players go and why they go to certain places is definitely uh, worth a look this is why i miss kikette chris do you remember kikette Oh God, yeah, that was great. Kikat, uh, good Nico, friend of ours. Is, uh, uh, yes, uh, Kelly. I don't. Kelly Davitt. Second name. Kelly Davitt. Yeah. Um, Nico, do you remember Kikat? I don't know what that is. No. Uh, Kikat used to be very good for watching players in training. A and that weirdly, this is going to sound unusual, but it, I suppose perfectly normal for uh, topless players. Uh, it was Xabi Alonso in his prime. Um, and also um, players with babies, players with wives, 
it was basically like a, a healthy version of the Daily Mail. Just like a website? The Daily Mail turned everything horrible. Yeah, they shut it down a few years ago, but Kikette was a classic website that fulfilled what I imagine was a very big hole. And now very, new- very voyeuristic needs of the fans to watch players shirtless. And it, was, no, it, was, it was quite un, it was like, but it was voyeuristic in a different, it was a different time, Nico. This was before football. Twitter. Well, you, you had an, you had an interesting conversation with, uh, what's his name from the, the in-betweeners? Uh, no, James <laughs> no, Buckley. uh, where you guys kind of talked about. Yeah, yeah, where you guys kind of talked about that dynamic of him going on vacation and being yeah. photographed by um, people and that kind of stuff. So th- I think that was an interesting conversation, if I have to allude to that. Yeah, it was, it was a good conversation. Um, it didn't change how I feel about Kikette and um, watching footballers. It was just a nice website. I don't know if it's still there. I'll, I'll take a look now. But it used to be about um, – basically, used to be about topless football players and their wives. Um, and it was, a, it was actually a great website. <laughs> Um, it makes me sound uh, voyeuristic in some way, but it was a very different time. Uh, yeah, it's not there anymore. Sad. Anyway, um, let's uh, let's talk for a second though, Nico, because you said you want to talk about the dynamic of Coutinho moving to Barcelona. What do you mean by that? Do you mean from a Barcelona standpoint? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think a lot of people, including myself, kind of I don't know if criticized is the right word. Criticized. The, the move for uh, Phil to go to Barcelona in terms of how he would fit into the side and all that, but um, from a transfer perspective, Phil, yeah, Phil, 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 right. Phil, did it come across as Bill? I meant to say Philippe. No, it Phil, just came across Phil as if Coutinho. you knew him. <laughs> I do know him. <clears throat> I don't know him like you do. Okay, um, but anyways, I think from a transfer perspective. Uh, it's it's important to because a lot of people kind of made the case that you know why would they really push for him in January if you know the summer is kind of a better time to get in players and you know there is plenty of valid points as to why um, pushing through a player to come in January has a, a certain downside to it but at the same time um, one transfer that I really like to point to is is Leroy Sané to to Manchester City when Pep Guardiola first came in. And obviously, he's had a massive impact on the squad. He's done exceptionally well under Pep Guardiola thus far. Um, and I think the reason for that is because he was uh, he was a summer signing, obviously. But then that period of time in the first like three or four months, he didn't actually play that much. He didn't get too many games. Um, and it was reported that he it's come out since in, in interviews and stuff that he's quite a timid character. And and he, you know, Pep Guardiola knew that and the scouting department knew that. And so they allowed him time to acclimate to his settings. They allowed him time to get to know, you know, the team and, and really get to to settle into, you know, his apartment and stuff in Manchester before they started, you know, trying to play him week in and week out. And I think people talk about how maybe it's not that much of an advantage considering uh, uh, Coutinho's cup tied, so he can't play for Barcelona in the Champions League. But I think that could be a big reason as to why they saw it necessary to bring him in January, because obviously they have a huge lead in, in the league and I wouldn't say they necessarily can coast, but they have a comfortable lead over uh, Atletico Madrid and Real Madrid. Um, but I think allowing Coutinho sort of half a year where Barcelona fans, which you know are, are rabid in some sense, will um, not expect so much of him as if it were a full season or, or if he came in in the summer is a really important process for a player that has, a, I think, a specific personality type and maybe one that is more similar to Leroy Sané. So I think bringing him in, in, in January and allowing him to, to acclimate to his new settings and his new teammates and his new coach is something that they saw as an advantage. And that I think that's probably 
the dominating reason as to why Barcelona saw this as a good time to to bring in another another marquee player. Yeah, I mean, it certainly satiates some of those Barcelona fans who maybe were worried, and Naby Keita, to, to a similar extent, satiates panicking Liverpool fans, though we still realise Liverpool may not have a defensive midfielder for the entirety of Jurgen Klopp's reign at Liverpool. Um, I was also told the other day by a Chelsea fan, uh, Rory, Chelsea Rory, that you heard from a relatively... A uh, loaded source, and I mean loaded as in he's, he's got so much money, um, that Jurgen Klopp was thinking of leaving Liverpool. And I'm laughing, but it, it would really upset me if it happened to go to Arsenal. I'm just going to leave that there. That's incredible. That's incredible. That's incredible. I think it was just banter, which Rory took too far, but I can't be sure at this point. Um, and it, it might just be the ginseng talking, boys, but... <laughs> Possibly, so, yeah. Um, it was a lovely bath either way. Thanks, Rory. Um, of course, Sunday comes around. And Nico, before we lose you tonight, can I talk to you for a second about how if you were Jurgen Klopp, you would beat this Man City team, or at least try to go about that, especially considering what he now has at his disposal, which is quite different to the previous times when Liverpool have, in recent years, done well against Man City. Do you think Do you think he'll use Naby Keita? I don't think there's any way that No, he, no, I'm just saying we, Liverpool don't have... Um, it's a difficult one because, you know, the strategy that I most praise that Spurs kind of used to some extent did not result uh, to it didn't end well for them. Um, and so it, it's difficult to, to come up with a strategy as to how be, to beat Manchester City, Manchester City. But I think I would stay along the same lines that Napoli and Arsenal and to some extent Tottenham did. I think Tottenham's major mistake was that they pressed them off the goal kick and that allowed, as Chris has touched on, as I've touched on, um, that allowed his distribution to take center stage. And obviously it's exemplary. So I think pressing them high and being compact in the in sort of the transitory phase as to whether as to when they um, are sort of transitioning the ball between defense and attack is key um, targeting players like Kyle Walker and Fernandinho I think would be essential playing someone like Adam Lallana and Sadio Mane if he's available who can kind of catalyze that press and really harry players into making not just giving away the ball but making bad decisions it's kind of you know if you hit a, a pass too hard and and that's kind of uh what player what some of the coaches at La Masia talk about if you know if a pass is hit incorrectly then it can take a player two to three to four seconds um to recover and, and kind of control it and then keep moving the play and if you can gain those kind of advantages with players that can um harry players actively then you have an advantage in those situations because I think just sitting back and get, being compact especially from a Liverpool perspective will not be enough to to you know control the game state against Manchester City. So I think creating opportunities in their own half by pressing them uh, really actively in in situations that are going to favor you, so off a throw-in or something like that, is going to be the key for Liverpool. And I think players like, like I said before, Sadio Mane, Adam Lallana, those guys are going to be key if Liverpool are to win the game. A fascinating game. Join us Sunday on the kickoff uh, with Coral at, ooh, good question, maybe three, what time's the game kickoff? Uh, let me just check that real quick. Uh, it kicks off at four. So 3.30, join us there. It's going to be great. Um, now, I went to the basketball the other night. I know how much people love basketball. I saw uh, the Boston uh, the Boston Flyers against the Philadelphia Eagles. And 
boy, was it good to see a flat earther uh, do some layups. Uh, I'm joking. I went to kind of see the Boston Celtics versus uh, Philadelphia, and Boston Celtics obviously won, but it was a court which was surrounded by players. Uh, a lot of French players. Olivier Giroud was there. Um, from what I could work out, it was Lacazette, but he genuinely dressed like a normal person compared to everyone else. Uh, and then it was interesting because, well, oh, Nico, you got to go. I do. I'll see, see you, later. you guys later. Uh, and then it was interesting, Chris, because on the sideline, Antoine Griezmann was there. He's a big basketball fan, as you know. I like that. Um, yeah, I hear he, I hear he is. Yeah, um, uh, I, I've never I seen. Like I've seen him at a Knicks game. <laughs> um, yes, I'm sure you have. Uh, he's a big fan. Uh, but in no ways does he take that fandom too far. Um, I just, I don't know. I just looked at him. I thought, geez, you've got balls. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's it's tougher for ballers because I feel as if the... No, no, I don't. I just mean you got balls showing up here after, you know. After? After your tribute to the Harlem Globetrotters. Oh goodness me! Yeah, that that shows where my head's at. I completely forgot about that. No, that is, <laughs> yeah, that is. Um, I assume he didn't go the whole hog this time. He just left it in his shirt. I think his girlfriend said, "Let I'm me check sure your outfit before you go out tonight." Yeah, put that boot polish down. Um, yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, he uh, obviously there's a lot of big basketball uh, fans out there. You know, one of them was Thibaut Courtois. Raheem Sterling was funnily enough there. I think he looks at. Nate Robinson and thinks I could do that um, but it was it was a good event but footballers and, and basketball players seemed to cross over it was it's quite an interesting one isn't it Chris footballers and musicians and there's a a long held belief that essentially uh, both want to do what the other does so musicians want to be athletes and athletes want to be musicians I think in terms of the crossover of the sport, I, I would imagine they can relate to each other in a way that maybe not many others can. Um, and, and at the same time, you know, the, the, there's an element of, uh, I guess, gossip to it. It's got quite an entourage feel about it. The fact that you have, I think, uh, Draxler was there and he went with uh, Mustafi and Ozil and Kalasanak. So there's this kind of aura, if you will, of, oh, could they be discussing transfers? And I think with it being January as well, um, that gives these outlets more opportunity to discuss this in depth. And I think that's why this, it kind of makes it all feel um, so glitzy and glamorous because you have these worlds colliding. And, and I mean, I think ultimately... If, if I'm the NBA, that's the reason you invite these guys is because you know that that will get domestic eyes on what you're trying to establish in the UK. Um, it's definitely interesting, um, Chris, because I don't know if it, you've had much more experience of MLS. I've only had limited experience of MLS. I have been to a few MLS games. Obviously, obviously, I've been to a Gold Cup. Um, I've been to the Gold, uh, been to the MLS All-Star game as well, which was a good one. But, Chris, 
here's the interesting side. At the end of the NBA game, um, all the players took their shoes off and took their jerseys off and gave them away to the crowd. And I just thought, why doesn't that happen more in, um, you know, the Premier League? Um, uh, the shirts I can't necessarily speak to. Um, the boots I would imagine because it takes time to wear boots in. And some players have very um, specific boots that are tailored to them. So giving them away essentially is giving away something that is, is tailored for you and getting a replacement for that is probably not that easy. And saying that, I know further down the leagues when, when you get to your sort of conference level, that type of thing, they don't actually want you to give it away because they can't afford it. Um, it becomes expensive to replace a shirt every week. Um, but yeah, at the top level, I'm not sure because I think certainly at least in away games, it's almost like a, a reward for turning up. Um, there's a little difficulty in making sure that someone new gets it every time, if you will, because it's almost know, the kids, isn't it? That's part of the. Well, there was a kid recently. I think that had a sign saying, "As much Thibaut Courtois, can I can I get your shirt afterwards?" And he did. I think it was the Arsenal game, but. He looked very unmoved to have got a play shirt. Yeah, like he expected it almost. But he, he has. Um, just, you know, it wasn't kind of... I, the thing is that there's a, a wide spectrum of emotions here. You have the kids who literally break down. There was, I feel it was a kid at Barcelona got PK's training top and broke down in tears. Um, and there's not more legitimacy if you cry or you know, have this overcoming of emotion. But I, th- I think, yeah, the, the reason they don't do it, I'm not sure, because to me it would strike me as a good way to kind of engage with the audience. I do think it's quite an American thing, though, because when I go to uh, baseball games, there's obviously the element of catching the ball itself, but they will at some stage during the nine innings, um, which is far too short in my opinion, they will take a T-shirt cannon and they will fire them into the crowd. Um, so yeah I think there's there's definitely something that maybe the Premier League could learn there in terms of inclusion or kind of you know building a rapport with your audience yeah they've got more than enough money to be able to buy a new shirt every week let's put it that way uh, do you have a shout Chris uh, from downtown I was asked to stop doing that explicitly yeah yeah but it was because she was trying to get sleep at the time uh, anyway it's it's a joke. It's uh, and it's a tasteless one. I'll be honest. Uh, VAR is coming around now, Chris, uh, and it's it, uh, people are already angry with it. Uh, people are already needlessly blaming it for stops in the game. Uh, people are saying it's not working in the background. It'd be silly if we took things back. People are saying they don't want to see Antonio Conte running down the sidelines doing a te- doing a, a mime of a television. Um, I think people should start guessing uh, uh, almost in a charade style TV shows. Uh, match of the day. Uh, can't work it out. Um, do you do you enjoy VAR? What's your opinion on VAR? Uh, it's, it's difficult because the sample size is so small um, that really, for me right now, I see both benefits and drawbacks. And I, and I think 
I talked about this recently, that for me, the bigger issue is consistency. And so I think if VAR establishes a consistency, then it will hold more of a, a relevance and a, and a positivity to it. I think you look at the Bundesliga as a case study, you look at Serie A, there was, I think it was Gazette talked about the number of decisions that it has essentially rectified, um, but supporters talk more about the decisions that it hasn't fixed. And I think there is the underlying issue is that are you looking at VAR to be a cure-all? If you are, then you're going to be disappointed because there are some decisions that, you know, even now you can watch them back and the footage that you have at your disposal doesn't give you any clear indication of, of what was correct and what was incorrect. But it can definitely and I help think, on it. Well, this is the thing. I think one of the aspects of football that makes it so unique is that it moves at such a quick pace that if a decision is, say, given or not given in this case, say, say your team doesn't get a penalty, the, the sheer pace of the game means that within 10, 15 seconds, my team could be down at your end trying to score. And so the speed with which it goes means that you don't necessarily have time to really focus on the error or the mistake within the moment. And, and I think equally the open-ended nature of it means that you think, well, okay, you know, they didn't get that, but we'll get another chance, that kind of thing. I don't, I don't think it necessarily lends itself to VAR in the same way that, say, American football does, where it's a lot stop-start and there's no great issue in waiting or having to be patient for something. I think in football, it's very much an instant gratification sport. And, and that can be frustrating for supporters when you then have to stop and say, OK, we're going to evaluate whether this was a penalty or not. Especially if, like I saw theorised this week, my team goes down the other end and scores. It is then brought back. Their goal is ruled out and your team is given a penalty. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I also think it's the start of something and it will get better in time and it's the beginning of technology helping a referee out on the pitch. Um, and as slow as it might be right now, I feel like that's going to be a sort of very rare thing. But I can understand Conte's need for um, more extra time or those sorts of things because of all the stoppages. Or I say all the stoppages, that the one stoppage that was actually in the game. Uh, and I think a lot of people... I don't know, people seem to be... It's, it's very difficult to be a pundit around VR because I think very few people understand uh, the vision of it. Um, but I think at the moment, it's not It's not the viable solution. It will be in time, though. Um, of course, Chris, one of the teams competing the other night with VAR was Arsenal. And Arsenal have got a bit of a tumultuous January to come. Wenger said some very unusual stuff in January, saying Sanchez may stay. Uh, not only past January, but he may also sign a new contract. Um, Sanchez, it also looks as if Mourinho on Friday in his press conference is also as, uh, may be subject to a Manchester United bid. He may also be subject to a Man City bid. How do you see this one uh, has played out so far, Chris? And do you think, do you think clubs will find a new way to deal with players who are looking to run their contract down than the way that Arsenal have chosen with uh, these guys because it was a great point made on the ramble before we started recording was to replace both Ozil and Sanchez in the modern market could cost you as much as as little as 200 million and as much as 300 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, I'm not sure if I agree necessarily with that estimation. I think that starts at the high end personally. Um, we'll I, think, I think the way in which clubs deal with this implies that Arsenal had a plan in the first place and I don't think they did. Um, or if they did, they were ignorant to the fact that whether Sanchez and Ozil stayed for that season, it didn't change the fact that they needed another three or four bodies on top of that and to replace key positions such as centre-back, for example. So I think if, if Arsenal's intent was, as we outlined, I think at the start of the season to keep both of them to have a right good go at the Premier League and come Christmas this t- this time right now even sit at the top of the Premier League and say right we're doing exactly what you claim you want to do this is what we'll continue to do so stay or whatever I don't think they really prepared themselves to do that at all I think they kept them on board in the hope that they would have a push but I don't believe at any point during pre-season we talked about Arsenal being uh, contenders for the title or even likely to win the Premier League title because all of their opponents, Man United, Man City, I'd argue Liverpool, Chelsea, they all pretty much, maybe Chelsea less so because it was more guys like uh, Danny Drinkwater, but even then they signed Mariah. They all made moves to improve what they had. And so Arsenal hadn't finished above them the previous year so what on earth was going to suggest that they were suddenly going to click perfectly? I think that's one of the big uh, misgivings I have with, with Arsene Wenger is that for years now, he's thought that the familiarity that he had amongst the squad would give them some competitive edge when it just hasn't. Theo Walcott hasn't got better. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of, of other players as well that the look. Danny Welbeck hasn't been able to get better largely because of injury and I think that's the the problem is that if it's uh, a player it's in Manchester United or Chelsea or whoever I think they handle it differently I think if they they do keep them on board they do have a, an actual chance at, at shooting for the, the Premier League title um, otherwise I think yeah there's a certain power move in holding on to them but if you're going to come to sell them in January, I don't know what message that sends either, to be to be quite frank. Yeah, it's a very difficult one. It does seem to be taking some of the power back for the players. But at the same time, let's see um, whether clubs find a way to counter it. There's a, there always seems to be a bit of a power struggle 
between players and the rest of them. Um, it's yeah, it's interesting, but let's let's see how that one plays out. Um, Chris, elsewhere, uh, Bundesliga's back, and uh, the the guys at the very top, Bayern, have gone. I think four, is it fourteen points clear. Um, by getting a win uh, 3-1 over Leverkusen, which, yeah, they are now 14 points clear. Schalke are the nearest challengers, and Leverkusen and Dortmund are 16 points behind them in in the league. It's um, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, everyone sort of thought that everyone every season thinks that Bayern or Juve will fall away. And then looking at all of the uh, results, it tends to play out that over the long term, other teams grind down and Bayern and Juve pull out ahead. Do you think that's just down to them being such huge institutions? I think, um, yeah, I think I think that helps. It's it's always going to help. Um, what I think, more so in the case of Bayern, less so in the case of Juve, is that they have significant financial clout. Bayern can go and buy the best players, be that domestically or even continentally as well. Juventus, I think, have had to be much smarter and much cannier. And you see them linked to Ozil. Now, I'm not saying that that deal will, will come to fruition, but I think it's an easy link to make when you look at the likes of the Pelo deal, the Pogba deal, even getting Tevez for, I think it was 10 million euros at the time. There's been a number of deals where Juventus have just moved smarter than their competition domestically. Um, Inter Milan, AC Milan even, possibly the better example, spent a lot of money this summer. Now, some of that was well-structured. The Frank Kessie deal is a good example, but it doesn't change the fact that they've invested heavily and it hasn't seen an upturn. And I think it would be almost naive to, to jump one side or the other, whether it's the fact that they have financial wealth or that they're institutions. I think there's a blend of, of both, at least in Serie A, mixed with the fact that Juventus are canny operators. As I say, for Bayern, I think it's it's slightly different. I think they do have a power that can't be matched um, domestically. Now, you fall into the chicken and egg conundrum of which came first. Was it the, you know, the, the unbridled success that, that, that yeah. built that financial powerhouse? Or was it the fact that they were just willing to spend more in the first instance? I All think we chicken. have a similar debate with, with Manchester United in this country, if, if I'm honest. Yeah, there are some funny uh, chats going on about Manchester United somehow not investing enough money um, this season. It's a great one. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe it's a valid one considering how much Man City spent to level what they consider to level the playing field. Uh, but over the past few seasons, I think City have found themselves in the top five record transfer spends of the of the transfer windows. So it's certainly an interesting one. Elsewhere, people have a little less budget to work on, Chris, um, and worry about players going away uh, due to voodoo. Uh, Everton. Um, now, Mashiri's obviously been utterly disrespectful uh, in implying uh, that, that a player... I mean, the, the weird thing is, Chris, I'm not... You know, obviously... It's disrespectful because of the beliefs um, that uh, that we, we find Lukaku has, which apparently here is a very Catholic boy, um, and so he, you know he wouldn't base uh, his decisions around something um, like like voodoo, um, just because of his core beliefs. Um, 
but at the same time, it's sort of a, it's a very unusual thing to say in general, Chris, that a player left based on voodoo. Do you think that's a, you think we're seeing a sort of a cultural side or a cultural clash here between um, two, or two two sets of people really, and also a chairman or someone at the top of the club just desperate to uh, show that it wasn't that Everton weren't going in the right direction. I think we're seeing a <clears throat> fucking idiot be a fucking idiot, if you pardon the French. Um, I'm, I'm trying my best. Oh, okay. Uh, the, there's no there's no other way to, to explain it. It's not a cultural clash. It's not anything. It's it's someone who is an idiot. Um, I think he, he is possibly upset or frustrated that they lost Lukaku. Um, perhaps even disappointed that in retrospect, 70, was it 75 million they got in the end? Seems low is, now. Is probably, probably, yeah, probably a, a fair, if somewhat on the conservative side, given the way the market is is trending. Good point. I think at the same time, it, and I can't speak to this with any authority because I have not lived that life. I can sympathise, but I can't necessarily empathise. It reaffirms the way that certain aspects of football perceive African players or players of African descent. Yeah, it really does, yeah. And I think that's quite damaging. Um, it, but it's, it also, it's also a, okay. It would also be okay, Chris. And, and I think it's worth saying at this point, I think a lot of people have been quite dismissive of the story because it, it used the word voodoo in it. Um, it would be okay if Lukaku went to where, wherever he went to and made a decision there because of a cultural experience um, that he had. I'm not saying he did. I'm just saying what I haven't enjoyed so far in some of the reporting or some of the uh, the uh, coverage has been the dismissal of uh, the use of uh, uh, something like voodoo, even if I find myself to be a sort of more on the atheistic side than um, anything else. Yeah, I, th- I think, I think, like I said, it's, it reaffirms the very narrow uh, scope of discussion that often surrounds players of, of Lukaku's heritage. We often refer to black players being a physical beast or a monster or whatever. Yeah. We, def- we define them in very narrow characteristics. Um, we don't necessarily talk about intelligence or brilliance or that kind of... Um, Adjectives. And for a man who also speaks a lot of languages, right? Because Lukaku speaks, I think, is it four four languages? I wouldn't be surprised. Um, yeah. I, th- I think... I, I think, yeah, I think it's, yeah. it's a moment where really we have to stand up and, and almost say that this isn't acceptable, that you can't... I don't really care of the context, whether he said it live on Sky Sports or he said it in a closed meeting. I, I don't think your your rhetoric should change. I yeah. think that there has to be a discussion with him and possibly in football in general, because a lot of people, maybe even some listening right now, will think this is is two white guys trying to be politically correct. And it's really not. It's really not in the slightest, because I've, I'm of strong enough convictions that if I didn't think it was an issue, I would quite happily say so. And I think this is part of the problem is 
on being out of touch or from a different generation. I think we all have to get into the line of thinking is this generation that there is no acceptable excuse for, for that kind of, um, yeah, for that kind of rhetoric, really. That's the best word I can think of. It's, it's funny because it's not, it's not funny at all, but uh, the turn of phrase, it's funny is, uh, obviously, you know, Africa and Europe are two completely different continents. And it's fair to say that both the heritage of both continents is intertwined in such an evil, horrible way in the first place. Um, and I can say that as someone who's probably benefited from some, not not in such a direct way that I've engaged in uh, any sort of, you know, slavery, but, you know, we understand where I'm coming from. And, um, and I definitely don't engage in that. I, I think it's the, the idea of white guilt, I think it's just a, an unusual idea in the first place. Um, and I don't mean that in a dismissive way to people who think that white guilt's a real thing. I just mean more of a... Um, people who dismiss anyone sort of feeling uncomfortable about uh, benefiting from the color of your skin or where your culture comes from and why that's more prevalent. Um, and I think there are wider discussions about the evolution of culture and the evolution of, uh, you know, uh, the aggressive evolution of culture or the aggressive movement of cultures around the world. And, you know, how that's happening through globalization is very, very important. But it's, it's, in, it's almost fair to say, Chris, that it's almost like if I went to go and visit my cousin in Devon and then I came back to London and made a career decision, my boss saying it's because he went to a Wiccan witch. Yeah, I, th- I think it's just ignorance. That's which thing. I would. She's not I, a witch. I can almost... I, I can almost... can almost take ignorance to a certain degree if it's not malicious, but I think this is the difference. This felt malicious. He was, he was lamenting someone's decision based on what he perceived to be something stupid. Do you do you do you ever think so? It's it's not. Sorry, go ahead. I I don't think so. I don't think it's the thing is, and I appreciate that the longer we go on this, the more laboured it becomes. I don't think it's purely something that is uh, deemed with racial overtones. I think it's a maliciousness to paint out someone as if they are stupid. Because even if he had taken that route and that was the outcome, he's perfectly entitled to do that. That's that's within his, his wheelhouse to do. And I think that's the problem is that this was not someone speaking with the naivety of ignorance. Yeah, was this was someone speaking with the maliciousness of ignorance. Yeah. Which is, um, there are two very different sides there, and I imagine there'll be some listeners that are upset by that. Um, but hey, we're coming to your World Cup, so suck it up. Um, it, it's it's going to be interesting, isn't it? Uh, and obviously, uh, Chris, there's some other, there is some real voodoo going on in the Premier League, uh, because Theo Walcott may be on the move, uh, and he may be on the move to uh, Sam Allardyce's Everton now. Um it would certainly be an interesting fit, wouldn't it? Uh, and, you know, looking at it, you know, Sam Allardyce loves to play with talented wingers uh, and some players out there who can be a little tricky. He seems like a player that would fit Big Sam's model. Yeah, I was discussing this with someone recently that, that for me, kind of Walcott is, he's neither one thing nor the other. He's not a traditional winger who will get down to the byline and cross or hug the touchline. 
nor is he really a conventional striker. Now, he has been used as a striker as part of a two-man forward line, and his pace does stretch defences. I'm not sure if, if Allardyce would be willing to make that concession for him, um, in the sense that he would have to potentially play, I don't know, Cenk Tosun and Theo Walcott. I can't imagine Umar Nias is getting back in or starting consistently anytime soon. Um, maybe as part of that 4-2-3-1 or 4-3-3, he works as sort of a right forward, I think the, the best term for it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, a right inside forward maybe yeah, is a, a great term as well. Yeah, and, and with that, um, there doesn't really come a lot of defensive responsibilities um, or or kind of anything other than being attacking, being stretchy. The one thing I would say is they've already got Aaron Lennon, so I'm not necessarily sure what is to be gained from getting Walcott as well because I would argue they're eerily similar. And <clears throat> I think Lennon is 30, 31 now. Yeah. Um, Walcott is, is 28, will be 29 by the end of this season. And it, it just feels like you're you're overloading on, on players with quite a similar profile, which I'm not too sure is is the wisest thing to do. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. I, I think they do bring slightly, I see a point, they do bring slightly different uh, portfolios, but I see a point, and, and that does actually very helpfully bring us on to, it would be, by the way, it would be great to see uh, Theo Walcott in an Everton shirt uh, and hear Everton fans taunting Liverpool fans. Uh, we got Theo Walcott, because apparently for years Liverpool wanted Theo Walcott. Uh, but I just want to hear the irony of Everton fans taunting Liverpool fans that they got Theo Walcott. Um, and people always also say Theo Walcott once he had so much promise. He still does. And I think he is still a decent football player. And he seems like a nice guy as well. Another Theo Walcott-based cliche there. Um, of course, Chris, speaking about Aaron Lennon, uh, Pochettino has also been talking about Aaron Lennon, considering the two teams will be clashing, I think, this weekend. And he spoke about his admiration for how uh, Aaron Lennon had spoken out about his mental health struggle that he'd had or his mental health uh, condition that he had at one time and how uh, he overcame that. And it, it, it was obviously, Pochettino's a real class act, I think, in the first place. Um, but it struck me, Chris, that it's certainly very interesting because obviously... Aaron Lennon was once let go from um, Spurs to go to another team. And obviously he's, he's at Everton now. Um, and it, I guess um, it must be, it, there's an interesting juxtaposition there of what Pochettino needs from his players and maybe why Aaron Lennon no longer finds himself at the club and his admiration for a human being on that level, which I think very often we we don't see that very public side, which is, I think, also why people reacted very well recently to um, Pep Guardiola speaking very publicly about, you know, family always coming first and those sorts of things. And I guess I was just really struck because you and I made a documentary about Pochettino, didn't we? And we were talking about um, how cutthroat and cold he can come across uh, in his squad selection and also in just you know letting players go and how you know if someone doesn't fit the mentality um how difficult that must be as a working relationship because it, it you know sometimes he really puts an end to it very quickly um and so i guess chris uh, it, it sort of shows the the balance of 
a character and a man like Pochettino when he can speak about his admiration very publicly for a player like Aaron Lennon. Do you sort of get what I'm uh, getting at there? Yeah, I think, look, you can take a page from life here and and say that there are times that perhaps romantic relationships don't work out, but you can still appreciate the person that you got to know. I I think there's a similar situation unfolding here that that for me, everything that um, that I've heard about Aaron Lennon paints him as a very humble, down-to-earth young man. And I think at the same time, the the very nature of football, stories like this are less about um, educating and more about containment. Um, I'm sure we can think of, of ourselves stories involving players that never got out to the public eye that could be not necessarily damaging, but could differ the way that they are perceived and portrayed. And that's where the the courage emanates from in talking about mental health struggles is that you have to accept that in the eyes of some people, your perception may be changed. You may be seen as damaged. And that's unfortunately more a comment on the state of society and its relationship with mental health rather than the person who is using the courage to to come forward I think and also the complexity of, of, of mental health uh, as we know it at the moment or being able or maybe part of the importance of speaking about it because you begin to get a hold and a grasp on why um, or how someone could overcome a problem like that rather than considering them to be damaged goods or sort of you know whatever whatever you want to talk about in a, in a market because market very often doesn't really acknowledge uh, human value in the same way uh yeah i i think i think ultimately we have to try and normalize it in some ways um so that so that players in his position don't feel alienated when it it potentially strikes them um because look i I think it's it is perhaps more relevant when a player like aaron lennon comes forward and says that he has those issues but we have to accept that there will be a player in league two maybe struggling to break into the reserves that is having a similar issue. <clears throat> and it's it's not only about tending to those at the top of the tree, it's about tending to those at the bottom as well, who can feel just as much, if not more, isolated by their position and, and an inability to, to potentially speak out. Because football, by its very nature, I think, has tremendous power to almost alleviate mental pain and mental stress. Yeah. Um, we see it in, in many different avenues but at the same time when it becomes your profession when it becomes your job I don't find it hard to believe that it can also give more fire to that give more weight to that mental struggle and that mental anguish and so we have to be conscious of both sides of the coin and taking care of both sides of the coin as well and, and using football not just as a a tool for recovery and a tool for aid but also accept that not everyone has that experience from it. It's a very interesting one. Uh, there's a very powerful and moving documentary about um, Kenny Dugleish, which is just called Kenny at the moment, which I've uh, had the pleasure of watching um, tonight, actually, before we, we watch this. And um, it's it's about, I think there's a lot of mental struggle in that as well. Um, and I'm also reading a book at the moment about, I understand these are Liverpool idol, idols rather than, uh, and they could be general idols, but uh, Rafa Benitez as well. 
um, just called Rafa Benitez by Paco Loret, I think it is, or Loret, um, and about uh, him sort of changing his focus from being a player and then uh, becoming a manager um, and trying to use some of that energy towards young players, all sorts of people, all sorts of people in his life. And it's a fascinating read about how people overcome uh, with, with Doug Leach, it was very much a heartache and a, a real difficulty multiple times, I think, at Liverpool. And with Benitez, I think initially it was physical problems uh, with a uh, bad knee injury. Um, and then also uh, other struggles of doubt and all sorts of things like that, which uh, I think very often when you see the end product of a person, maybe that's what we see with Aaron Lennon, you know, we see the end product of him as a winger and the facets that he has. Uh, you know, you look at Benitez in the same way as, um, you know, people call him the fat Spanish waiter. Um, and, you know, uh, these public figures uh, very often have a lot more to them. Uh, I think Sir Alex Ferguson is another one of those as well. A really interesting character that in football uh, is one way, but in real life is very much another. Um, he was also at the basketball the other night, though. So he clearly just appreciates sport, good sport, as he shouted at me. Uh when I tried to get a picture while he was pissing. Uh, that that didn't happen. It was a joke. Um, anyway, let's move on. Uh, Chris Conte has refused to commit to Chelsea over the summer, publicly at least. Um, do you think this is an indication that he's, again, back off to Italy, going to Milan, 100% nailed on, Gattuso's just keeping the nest warm? It wouldn't. Doesn't surprise me. Um, Good. I think. I think he has tired of of the situation with Roman Abramovich quite quickly. Um, well, wait till you get to the, Milan. Mate. Well, I think this is the thing: is that one of the appeals of going to to Chelsea is the fact that they are so focused on winning that their pragmatism uh, defines the club. Because if they're not. Premier League champions, if they're not close to being European champions, then what are they? That's that's the almost the, the double-edged sword of, of Chelsea is that because the first thing that was said to them when they got new money was you've got no history, they're now almost desperate to prove that wrong and to make history. They will never be content with a fourth-place finish, for, for example. Um, and I think that that kind of that drive, that determination, that appeal to Conte because he saw it himself, and he's the kind of person who, as you know from doing that documentary, will burst into the Juventus dressing room and say, "You guys are crap, and this has to stop now. This is not Juventus." That's that's him. But the problem is, is that when you have a, a relationship that is so tempestuous and and fueled by almost rage at its core, I think real kind of just you know, pushing as hard as you can for as long as you can, there becomes a point where you have to stop and that doesn't work. Um, you know, it's it, it's a situation where I think in the summer he had expectations or demands um, on the Chelsea squad in terms of players that he wanted in. He wanted to, to feel like the squad was more his own. I think he probably felt as if the first season it was him showing his adaptability, his pragmatism, and that delivered them the league. Um, and now he wanted to, to feel a bit more like a, a Conte team. You know, we, we talked about before the, 
the analogy of the tailor making the clothes fit the the players. I think he wanted the clothes to fit him a little bit. I think that's why he went after Rudiger. I think that was a really good indication of where Conte's head was at. And I think since then, he hasn't felt that same level of of commitment um, towards his desires, ideas, targets, which whichever word you want to apply to it. And so I think, yeah, he's, he's ultimately deciding, actually, I'm going to do what's best for me because I don't feel this is an equal partnership. And I think that's the problem with Conte is that when you get him in, he he will fire all six of the pistons up and the engine will be running at it, at its top speed. But he demands as much as he gives, I think. Certainly an interesting one because uh, you, I like the analogy you use of the um, tailor. It, it can sort of go both ways, though, because obviously if you miscut your cloth, um, you know it's a difficult it's difficult to recut a suit sometimes. You don't, you know, that's why it's such a careful industry. But at the same time, I think James Horncastle says this when he uses the same analogy: a tailor must cut his cloth accordingly, not necessarily always dictate how he might cut even though maybe he can suggest how you would cut um let us know how we've cut this one down uh chris are you looking forward to football this weekend it looks like it's going to be a good weekend of football uh, especially after the fa cup last weekend which didn't deliver at the very top level the amount of upsets that people wanted i think i am nervously hoping that newcastle can get three points so once once that game is finished, I may be able to enjoy or not enjoy things accordingly. The kickoff, exactly. Uh, yes, and if people want to go see your thoughts on Newcastle and a number of other interesting things right now, where can they go? Uh, at K Hennage. Uh, that's at K Hennage. K H E N E A G E. It's in the description. Go uh, click it, and you can also follow Nico from there as well. You can also follow me, Adam. And of course, Stat Man Dave, who has a brand new Instagram. Uh, go and take a look at, at Stat Man Dave, at Stat Man Dave on Instagram. Uh, we will see you again real soon right here on Tier Three. When you join us on Monday, you can join me, uh, True Geordie, uh, Dave, uh, Spencer Owen, and indeed David Bianic on Sunday for the kickoff. Uh, in the meantime, let us know what you think of all the weekend's football. We'd love to hear your thoughts. We'd love to hear your thoughts on everything we've covered today as well. Uh, enjoy your weekend. See you Monday. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 